0: Support for this podcast comes from JCPenney. This holiday, our in-person gatherings may be a bit more intimate, and our virtual ones, bigger than ever. But no matter how traditions change, what's most important is celebrating special moments with the people who matter most. JCPenney has all the best gifts, all in one place, making it easy to send your warmest season's greetings to loved ones near and far. Looking for the perfect gifts for everyone on your list? We'll be back soon with some of our top gift picks. Joy, comfort, peace. JC Penny.
1: Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My guest today is Karina Newsome, who I found via Instagram, I've been, Karina, I've been new to Instagram in quarantine. And I have, so I took like a two and a half year break from social media. Twitter was like my main thing before that time. And so I, I was only used to using Twitter and I follow some scientists on Twitter and stuff. And like, none of them are on Instagram. So I'm like fishing around for people on Instagram. And I started I started also just like following wildlife stuff like, you know, just like BBC America, like just like all these like great planet Earth and stuff, because especially now more than ever, I need like wildlife pictures and stuff in, in, in my life. And I found you on Instagram, started following you. You got some cool content on there. So I dug into your stuff a little bit. Why don't you tell listeners um, a little bit about yourself and who you are?
2: Yeah, so my name is Karina Newsom, and currently I am a master's student at Georgia Southern studying McGillivray seaside sparrows, which is a little bird that lives on the coast. Birds are kind of my thing. I love birds. I became obsessed with birds when I took ornithology in college and so ever since then I have been birding, which is the verb we use, you know, to say that we're looking going outside stalking birds. Um, and so I've been doing that recreationally and then You know, I was a zookeeper for about four years after college where I worked with a wide variety of animals, but birds were still my favorite. And so I was like, you know what, I wanna contribute to the conservation of birds in some capacity. So that's why I went back to grad school to kind of work more on the research side of uh, bird science Um, So that's why I'm here. And I recently, two weeks ago, just started a new job with Georgia Audubon as the community engagement manager. So I'm doing that full time now, which is really a dream come true, because like my whole mission in life is to connect people with wildlife, but to focus specifically on like oppressed people groups in this country um, in that work. So that's what I do
1: oh that's amazing well uh, um if you don't uh, could we talk about that a little bit how 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 does uh, how how does a, how does a birder um uh, connect with the public in a way to um uh, uh, to highlight other social causes
2: yeah, so I think that a couple of things. One, I recognize that a lot of people enjoy birds and don't call themselves birders. So the number one thing to recognize is that birding in the United States is a very white culture centric activity um, that kind of misses the bird joy that exists in other people groups simply because of the fact that it's literally 98% white, mostly male, mostly like retired. (laughs) So like what young person of color is gonna be like, I wanna be a part of that group, you know? So I think- But that's the case, I think, for a lot of like outdoor enthusiast groups and things like that. And so I think what there needs to be more of um, is not saying to, you know, people of color, Black people like, hey, come join this all white group of older folks and let's go look <laughs> yeah. but, No, it's like, it's like connect with people. You know, I'm, of course, a Black person, but I spend a lot of time in these in these spaces. And it's important for the stories of people of color and Black people to be to be heard and to be told, because a lot of times our enjoyment of the outdoors are doing literally anything, minding our business. <laughs> Tent yeah. can be negatively impacted by white supremacy, racism, by expectations of, of, of black people, stereotypes. And, you know, we can kind of talk about that in any context, but in birding and an outdoor exploration, it can be very marked. Um, and which is why we saw, you know, this summer when Christian Cooper, who's a, a well-known birder, um, was, threatened in such a park by, you know, by a white woman who called the police on him and said, there's a man threatening, a black man threatening my life. It was just, it, it was one of those situations where- That,
1: that was, he was that? a birder? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah.
2: He was out there birding and this woman had her dog running around. Off of I it.
1: didn't know that aspect of the story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Holy and so, crap. yeah. Because- she Because- Yeah. She, I was going to well, say, she basically like had her dog off leash, which, which is not allowed in that area because it's like a, a wildlife area, you know, that's like designated. Yeah. And so he was like, can you please put the dog on the leash? She wouldn't do it. They, you know, she, so he was like, I'm going to give treats to your dog if you don't like, <laughs> if you don't, you know, <laughs> put uh put the dog on a leash. And so then she called the police and said, there is a an African-American man threatening my life and started like scre- kind of like screaming and like, Doing a I very saw
1: different. all that aspect yeah.
2: of it. Yeah, that's what happened.
1: That was birding. That was birding. Amazing. Well, yeah, because I, I mean, at first when you're talking about how all 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 birders are white, I was like, yeah, <laughs> that, that that makes sense. I can I can see that stereotype forming in my head, but at the same time, I was like, well, it's probably just I get not feeling included, but I don't. I doubt there's like there can't be that many, like, super racist birders out there. I just don't connect, like, I don't, is this my own, is this me being naive that I don't, that I don't connect, like, um like, wildlife science enthusiasts, naturalists? Uh, I just, I just assume that they're, like, a hair toward the more progressive side of things. Am, am I? Am I? Am I wrong in thinking? I, well, I'm glad I'm asking this question because now you can set me straight.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I'm glad that you have you've had experiences with people that that lean that way for sure. But so, what's interesting is that the outdoors, whether you're talking about national parks, you're just talking about outdoor exploration. White people and I'm going to talk about black people in particular don't have the same experiences. Like. A black person, like, and there, there are lots of professionals in the field, one of which is Drew Lanham, who's a um, professor at Clemson, who talks about birding while black. Like, if you're a black man, you better not go owling, because you know what owling is? That means you're going outside at nighttime with binoculars looking for birds. You look, this- as, a, as a black man, you're going to look mad threatening to the average white person. And so you just shouldn't do that. White people can do that. White people can go owling. But if you're a black man, probably not safe. Um, and even more than that, though, like a lot of times wildlife scientists, bird birders or otherwise, have to go into remote areas for their research, you know, like out in the sticks. I do for my research. And out there, you're in, you're not just encountering wildlife scientists, you're mostly encountering residents who typically find you threatening and find you suspicious. And so those experiences are ones that tend to be specific to black people and other people of color but white people don't have those same experiences and so when those experiences are brought to the table oftentimes we're shut down or we're told we're being too political or we're bringing race into science or race into burning and that creates a divide and that silences the experiences of people who aren't white which is exclusionary That's...
1: You are opening my, you know, I thought as I'm, as I'm, uh, you know, on the other side of things, getting like yelled at by people on Facebook constantly and fighting with Trump supporters and whatnot all of the time, I'm, I'm like, you know, I consider, my. I'm a comedian. Comedy is a pretty diverse feel. So even though I'm like from a smallish Wisconsin town, had a super uber white upbringing and everything, I well, for my background, like, I sort of like to think of myself as like having gotten some exposure to that. But but this is like a huge uh, wow. This is such a blind spot for me to not even um, uh, to not even think of. Uh, of of the aspect of like yeah even just being able to go out and go hiking without arousing suspicion or something that is that is such an incredible um point to make what about what about um science and in academia uh generally do you see um do you see barriers within academia i know it's a um, you know, just from academics that I've talked to that it's a big part of um, the the current conversation going on within universities and and elsewhere about um, the you know including more diversity or where different you know what what standards and and practices, and, and and I don't know. <laughs> do, do you have, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you talk on this.
2: No, Oh, no, you're right. And it's like, you know, from the outside looking in, if, if academia is not your profession, or you're not really familiar, it can be hard to really, I guess, be aware of the, the intricacies of that kind of dynamic. But I think that one of the issues in STEM in general, whether you're in academia, or you're working in some other capacity in STEM, um, lack of representation is a really big issue. So when I think, you know, I've done this exercise with kids several times where I'll be talking to like a group of sixth graders and I'll say, just physically just describe a scientist. And without fail, they describe a white man with glasses, a lab coat, crazy gray hair, you know. And that's usually that's typically what they describe and it's like that's very telling um, for how we conceptualize scientists and STEM professionals and then what kids think they can do. Because um, believe it or not, like the reason why I'm so aware of this is because my story reflects the importance for the need of representation in academia and in STEM careers in general. Because it wasn't until I saw a black woman wildlife scientist that I thought I could do it. And not because I was actively thinking, you know, oh, only white men are wildlife scientists. So me as a black woman, I can't do that. That thought never, ever crossed my mind. I didn't even know that my mind was structured that way until I saw her. And I was like, I was like, oh, wait, like, I can do this. Like, I can be a zookeeper. I can be a wildlife conservationist. And I didn't even realize I had, my mind had filtered that possibility out for me until I saw her. And so that's when I realized, okay, like this perpetuation of whiteness, both you know, in reality, in the academic space, and even what media portrays to be a scientist has tangible impacts on whether or not kids choose those careers, you know? Um, And so that's one way. And then, you know, another issue that can arise in academia is that you'll have, like, say, one black person or one non-white person, and a lot of times people rush to this individual to speak for their whole ethnicity to speak for people of color everywhere to change the systemic issues in in the culture and academia and it's like that person's just a scientist like for example i'm not a social scientist i'm not a diversity and equity specialist like i'm a scientist so you should hire a specialist in this instead of coming to me for free labor to fix the problems in the university you know so that kind kind of can be perpetuated a lot in academia which can be very draining for people of color
1: that's interesting. So just because you're a person of color in academia, then like the dean or whatever is coming to you like, "Hey, person of color, we want more diversity." Or can you start with
2: every single committee that we have. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Wow, this is going to be an enlightening uh convers- Hey have you ever have you ever heard that um have you ever heard that study where they gave um um, Asian females, the math tests. And they had, oh, it's pretty cool. Um, so they, they had, uh, boy, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not, I I wish I could remember who did it and more of the specifics, but I'm pretty sure I have the gist of it down. They gave, they gave Asian, um, women math tests and they, they just gave them regular math and they had like scores like, you know, that were, Average math test scores and that, but then if they had, if if instead before taking the test they had they had them fill in their gender, um, uh, they they would do worse on the math test because they were reminded that they're female. If they had them, um, uh, say uh, ask for their race ahead of time, they were reminded that they were Asian and they did better on the tests because what? of these self fulfilling. So these are are also like concepts of ourselves that we take in and influence our behavior and what we think ourselves capable of and everything else.
2: Oh, my. That's so true. Because and listen, Shane, like to this day, if I encounter a challenge, right, that, you know, I'm doing some sort of work in the field or a problem solving, solving a problem of any kind. When I think about the fact that I don't see any other Black people in my academic space, I that literally has a tangible impact on my ability to to problem solve in that moment because I start doubting. Like I'm wondering, is there something about me? And that's why there's not very many of us here that I can't do this. Like, but I start questioning myself. Like that happens all the time, and I hate to even admit that, you know, because it's like I want to be the confident, you know, scientist and representative of you know for for Black women, but it's like truly. Yeah,
1: I would like to be the confident anything and anything ever. I know I never have been. <laughs> Let me give you a real white ass example of a similar thing. I was rock climbing one time outdoors, and I like screwed up. Um, I, I screwed up the like l- looking at the, the route map. Mm. Um, I, I I screwed up the the grade level on on a route. And it was much harder than anything that I'd ever done. But I thought it was like an easier route, and, and so I'm like climbing up it. I'm like, geez, this thing must be rated wrong and everything. And I'm just like, well, I stubbornly was just like, I'm going to keep going. And I made it to the top. and And I found out that it was like multiple grade levels harder than... <sighs> any route that i had ever done and if you think about that that is like a real that's a real metaphor for the for the stories that we tell ourselves in any in any like repressed group any like any group of uh, of humans no no matter where you are there are there are lots of things where people could um uh could accomplish quite a bit more if they just believed that they could Mm -hmm. and Um, for a guy that really has no, not too much place to speak on on the subject, it seems like repressed groups would be, um, the ones that are the most negatively impacted by some of these kind of self-fulfilling, um, stories that we tell ourselves.
2: Mm -hmm. Definitely.
1: Um, so do you, um, it, it, do you, it, how is there has social media um, made much of this easier or or like to to form networks and and get attention and and um, in terms of just inspiring younger people and and giving you know kids today like you know people like yourself to look up to and see new possibilities?
2: Absolutely. And I, I would even say that social media has been like the chief capacity in which I've been able to do that most effectively and most like efficiently. Because when I first got on like Instagram and, and Twitter, the first the first thing I did was, was I searched hashtag black and STEM because I was like, I am the only black person. Well, I think I was one of, up until grad school, I was the only black person in all of my wildlife classes in all of my vocational spaces. And then in grad school, there was one other person in wildlife science. So when I got on Instagram, I immediately Googled or searched hashtag black and STEM. And I just was like whoring over pictures of black people doing STEM work and followed all of that, like followed everyone I saw because, and I realized how much life that gave me and how much I was missing by not having that. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to use social media to uplift all these, as many people as possible, like me, um, who are people of color, Black people specifically, who are in this space so that other people can see it. And so since I really started doing that, probably about like two and some change years ago, um, like we, I have met so many Black people online, we, even one of, uh, a guy who I know who's a birder, <laughs> I, I, that word sounds so weird when I say it. He was a birder, a black man and a birder in um, Atlanta here. He, we all met each other. It was like probably a like hundred of us in wildlife sciences who met on Twitter. And he was like, let's make a group chat. So we made a group chat and we were all, a hundred of us in this group chat. Um, and we even, so in response to that situation that happened in Central Park with uh, the birder, um, we we did this like online uh event called Black Birders Week, uh, where we basically were celebrating, telling the stories of showcasing the work of black people in wildlife sciences and in birding in particular. And that like had a snowball effect and now there is black in neuroscience week, there's black hikers week, there's black uh, Botanist week. And so it's just like black people have been able to come together in a way that we can't in real life because typically we're the only ones in our physical space. But online, you can connect to anybody really fast and so not only can I be encouraged myself but I can be seen by younger people and there have been countless like and this is no glory to me at all but there have been many like young people whether they're in college or maybe high school who have reached out to me and said you know thank you so much for sharing your story because I've never seen someone like me you know and I I realized how important social media can be for that especially right now when we really can't even meet up in real life if we wanted to but um, social media has been powerful for that.
1: I mean, this is amazing just from a purely selfish, like science enthusiast point of view as someone who, you know, I've had a science podcast for six years. I try to incorporate science in my regular comedy shows, even when I'm just in regular comedy clubs and stuff, but I also put together science specific shows and, um, you know, I do Everything that I can to try to get science the public into science and it's challenge. Like I thought, I thought COVID happened. I'm like, well, now people are going to appreciate science. Whoops, (laughs) that was a little naive. (laughs) But but, you know, if but people, you know, this is people do care about um, social causes. Um, and And also being able to use social causes to also help promote science, this just seems like a win win for everyone involved because the 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 science stereotypes they aren 't helping a lot they aren 't helping like anybody when when there 's like a bunch of conspiracy theorists that right. picture some mad scientist in a lab coat meddling away trying to put microchips into our 5G poisons and that doesn't help anybody.
2: No. And you know, what's interesting is that I was actually, I was thinking about this recently, like communities for that very reason, communities need to see a, the image of someone they trust represented in those decision-making decision-making spaces and those science spaces, because and I, like I've seen this in my own family and like in the black community for me- in medicine, for example, right? Like the field of medicine has violated black people. Over and over again. Like, so has earned distrust from Black people over and over there's again. Been,
1: there's been some mistakes. Listen. Uh, horrifying. Yeah.
2: And so, like, there is earned distrust there, right? Yeah. So I have seen my family not trust, like, they will not go to a doctor. They will not take the medicine. They will not do anything that their white doctor tell them to, to do. But then my one of my Black nephews, who's a little older than me, he became a doctor and all of a sudden when he says something people believe it you know and it's like i trust this person i know he, either they know him personally or it's like okay we're from the same place we, we we're from the same culture like he's someone i can trust and so they'll believe him when he says stuff and i read through that experience i was like wow like representation as you said is not only important for just like future doctors and future stem professionals but for the people who have to trust this field for really big and important situations like a pandemic you know so yeah. you 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 hit it the nail on the head there
1: for sure yeah well this was with the with the aids crisis this is scientists figured this out too that people they needed uh, you know different communities uh, every every community needed like represent uh, representatives that they could relate to within those communities for right. them to trust that. i i mean i have i don't want to talk about a subject that maybe not 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 everyone in the world's comfortable talking about I, I another thing that i do i'm a psychedelic advocate um i and uh i I made a documentary about kind of um, the research of of uh psychedelics and and stuff and it's another it's another aspect it's I, I rarely talk about it on this podcast but it's just another it's a third hat that I wear um, and there's something that helped me with depression a lot and stuff like that. so so anyhow I'm in these kind of i'm within I, I'm involved in these psychedelic research uh, organizations like the multidisciplinary Association of psychedelic studies and they have like science conferences each year and stuff like everywhere else so I go to do this documentary so you know, I don't have as much diversity on my podcast as I, I would uh, like to because academia is the way that it is. And maybe I just need to try harder or whatever. Maybe you can help me. But I uh, I do – I have done a good job of making sure females are equally represented on my podcast. And I really wanted on my documentary to, like, have diversity, have – and it's just nothing but straight – old straight white dudes are, like, the main people that are still – in the field and it's changing rapidly but part of it's in, along the same lines uh, part of the reason why there's not as much diversity in that field is because it's like you know they're like hey there's these mushrooms or whatever or, or MDMA is being used for PTSD and there's a lot of minority groups being like okay like, we've heard this story before sure we'll just take your your drug and that will help us
2: mm-hmm yeah and I think it, it's gonna take some work and um, intentionality on the part of all these communities, whether you're like medical science or whatever science you might be to 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 bridge that divide and gain that trust back. And you know even for groups where it's there's not really necessarily a you know a history of of victimization necessarily by medicine, but like they don't see themselves represented, you know what I mean, and so they they'll trust information from sources. Where they ha- they see common ground, um, and not from where they don't see common ground, and so yeah, I you're yeah, I I'm not really familiar with the psychedelic uh, science. I know I wouldn't
1: I wouldn't field, expect but... you to be. A few, a few people are. <laughs> <laughs> but But uh, yeah, it's it's um, boy, it's such a it's such a complicated issue. And in, in having people with diverse takes is is mm-hmm. so important. E- even if. Um. To give you an example, uh, you you know, like I said, comedy is like a really diverse field, right? Well, that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean like race or gender or sexuality or whatever. It's like comedy also like one of my favorite acts that I saw recently um, or that that was on a show last year was a guy that was a rodeo clown, (laughs) Um, and it's like, oh, well, you don't get to hear that every day. Like, I want to know everything about this guy's perspective. Yes. And, and the thing is, is that just like different perspectives, whatever they may be, mm-hmm. are are going to be really valuable. Because otherwise we are, I mean, not just because they're hilarious and fun if it's coming from a rodeo clown. <laughs> Because we, we might, we might have, we might have um, some major blind spots, just like I would have never thought that, that, oh, oh yeah, someone, someone has to, uh, whether or not someone can go out birding is something that they have to think about if they're not a white person. That mm-hmm. is insane to me.
2: Yeah, and wow. I think that like the, the, yeah, like the, the difference of perspective that comes from diversity is exactly what makes it so valuable.
1: Yep. Yeah. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real
0: bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If You want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey
2: Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly.
3: Support for this podcast
1: comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in a new virtual room. Collaborate live, building ideas on the same page.
3: And see more of your team on screen at once. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams
1: um well let's talk about birds you want to? Yeah. i mean we can we can keep talking about social uh issues as well and mix them in but i, w- I definitely want to get into some bird talk yeah are sparrows actually your favorite bird or is that just like what you got into all right okay we're playing a game i'm gonna count to three and then we both say our favorite kind of bird
2: i like that okay
1: and then I and then we find out if you're correct or not because I know that I'm correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here we go. Are, are you are you ready? Ready. All right. One, two, three. Bauer Blue Jay. Bird. Blue what did you Jay. Bowerbird.
2: That's not a
1: bad choice. That's not a bad choice. <laughs> I okay. <told> you. <laughs> <laughs> Why the bowerbird? Um, I love the, um. Extravagant um, like showy, just ridiculous uh, like the, the no utility like for survival or anything else. It's uh, just just pure. I mean it's so I, I just love that. I, I, I like that like in some species the males will have the they'll build the tunnel in a way so that it narrows to have the force perspective to like make them look bigger than they are it's just such a reflection of like dudes Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's just like here's this huge ridiculous thing it's on the ground so it definitely doesn't make sense no one wants to put an egg in there that'd be dangerous (laughs) go out collecting useless things and then ladies are just like well that's I guess that's interesting okay that guy then
2: that's amazing and you know what like that's what I appreciate about bowerbirds and I think like I always anthropomorphize birds in in general just like as a habit maybe not a great habit but I do it like comparing behavior of bird men to human men (laughs) and the extent to which and it's not the extent to which a male will try to sometimes even fool a female into thinking that he has better fitness and capabilities than he really has. You know, and not that it's like conscious manipulation, but that's just how the genes play out, you know, that's how evolution plays out. And then I'm just like, I have cool. seen this behavior in this list of men before. Oh,
1: I'm doing it right now. You think I'm smart enough to have a science podcast? Of course not. But I can fake it, like, just enough. Oh,
2: my gosh. Uh,
1: So, well, now you're going to have to defend uh, Blue Jays because, I mean, all right, I wasn't expecting Blue Jay. Enlighten (laughs) me.
2: People hate them. People love to hate Blue Jays. Here's the thing, though. Really? Really? Oh, yeah, because they're always like, oh, blue jays are assholes. Like, they come to my feeder and, you know, I ha- I terrorize heard the birds.
1: Stereotype.
2: Oh, yeah. Like, blue jays are very – okay, so the, the, the loyalty that I have to blue jays lies in the fact that I fell in love with birds because of blue jays. They were the first North American bird that I ever learned about, and I was so confused how such a colorful bird had been around. I had never even noticed it, Right big too you know like not tiny like kind of big birds and they're just incredibly and i i'm very cautious to use the word like intelligent or smart to refer to species of animals because there are different kinds of intelligences um that some groups have that other groups don't but they're in a family called corvidae which includes jays magpies ravens um things like that birds like uh Uh, among those species and they're really well known for their intelligence so they're really good at problem solving they're really good at picking up on and remembering patterns they're good at mimicry blue jays mimic okay crows ravens all of them like better mimics than parrots like more realistic listen i could go on for days about corvids right but like blue jays oh yes real quick I was in uh, Friday Harbor in Washington, and there was a raven, a a, a common raven, barking like a dog in a tree. I thought there was a dog flying over me. It was perfect, perfect mimicry. I look up, and it's a raven. Anyway, blue jays, right? So blue jays are also good at mimicry. And there was one time I was at a feeder outside, and there were a bunch of birds there, and I heard a a, a red-shouldered hawk, which I'm not going to do the the imitation because it would be bad. But I heard a red-shouldered hawk, and I was like, oh! there's a hawk nearby and the woman whose house it was she was like those are blue jays and they're trying to scare off the birds by thinking making them think there's a a predator nearby and it's just them and then they'll come in and take all the food so blue jays are just superior incredible
1: (laughs) that's incredible well i i knew i knew like i've seen primates do that to like one another where they'll like make the signal to say that there's like a predator in the area and then Mm -hmm. they all scatter and then one will sneak in and grab everyone's food. But I never thought of an actual other species of bird. That's incredible to just for evolution, just to stumble on this trick that these like birds don't even realize they're I, i'm sure they aren't really like that conscious like whatever stimulus is happening where they're like i don't know i make this sound they all scatter i get food
2: <laughs> yeah incredible. and it's like i want i want to like so corbin's on my favorite group blue jay's my favorite bird and there was what just one time i like i think they do some of this for enjoyment too like i was working with this american crow as a zookeeper and one day he like we were closing out the day and he had a a bowl full of like fruit salad, like blue, blueberries, apples, papaya, all this stuff, right? Greens. I was doing my checks and I came to his enclosure and I look at the floor and he has arranged all of his fruit by color in straight lines, straight lines, parallel lines. I was like, and just, just because, and then he ate it. You know what I mean? Like it didn't, make anything happen nothing there was no benefit conferred to his survival he just did it because he wanted to and then he ate it and i was like "Corvus, man you really can't get to the bottom of them you just can't
1: that's well that's a that's ocd that bird has a, <laughs> that bird has an actual mental that bird needs therapy is what that, <laughs> that's that is that is so bizarre yeah huh mm-hmm. um are, are those, that the, the Corvid, do they have, are the, I always forget, what's that name of the bird that can, like, just mimic any sound, like, if a chainsaw's in the area, they'll make chainsaw noises and stuff, oh, you know what I'm talking about? What, I know what you're talking about. Because it's not a mockingbird, is it? No, 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 like no. A, birds can't like do that. It's, kind of a bigger, fat... Yes, it's, like, a like,
2: foul-looking, but, like, a, yeah, I'll have to look that up, I can't remember, I can't remember what it's called. But
1: That's I've seen it okay. on like BBC, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. <laughs> um. Well, uh, w- what about uh, the uh, when you're mentioning crows? Oh, this is this is something that I need to know before I keep on spreading bad information. <laughs> I I don't expect you to be a crow expert, but is it when you when you talked about stalking birds? It made me think of the um. It, uh, there's I've heard that crows will like stalk people. Like if someone like wrongs them or whatever, they'll, they'll, they can remember their face and treat them. Have you heard this?
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Is that an actual thing? Yes. Very much.
2: The stalking part, like, I don't know. Like, so when you say stalking, I don't know if you mean like follow them. I don't know if crows will follow people. I don't know, but they will remember. So if some sort of negative experience happened, They will remember who it was, and they can even spread that information to other crows who have never seen that person before. And they will also avoid that person or, like, have a reaction to that person. And one of my friends who's a crow scientist, Dr. Kaylee Swift, talks all about that all the time. Yeah, crows are phenomenal. Yes.
1: Huh. Yeah. That's... Because they can pass it on to their 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 children and stuff, right? Uh, just be like, we don't. Just so you know, we don't we don't like this guy.
2: <laughs> when this guy comes around, right?
1: <laughs> Have you ever seen? There's a there was some study where they took uh they took primates and they put. Um, boy, this this is one I'm I'm really risking. I hope I'm not spreading bad information here. Um, but it's so fun. So whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's. They have they have like five primates, right, that live together in some lab or something. Um, There's some ladder with like treats up on the uh, top of the ladder. And if the primates go to climb up for the treat, as well, treats are great, you know, uh, the sprinkler system goes off and they don't want to get wet. And so they uh, uh, eventually associate going for the treats with, the rain so they don't go for the treats anymore then um they'll take one of the primates out introduce a new primate that doesn't know this and if he goes for the treats they'll like stop him or even like beat them up or whatever to stop them so they don't get rained on and then he doesn't know why but he just like assimilates the social behavior and then they they bring in another primate swap out one of the old ones and the same thing happens. And now the one that never actually saw the rain or the association, he participates in like educating the new one or whatever. And then they eventually get them all swapped out so that there's five in there that never saw the rain or anything. Never uh, have, and and they just have. Uh, they they just won't go for the treat on the on the top of the ladder.
2: That's cool because I I've, you know, I've heard you know we hear about cultures you know so to speak in primate groups family groups whatever where certain behaviors yeah. a certain tool uses whatever it might be are kind of passed on but that is like next level
1: yeah that's yeah. really
2: cool i'm gonna have to look that up i'm gonna have to look more into <laughs> that that's cool uh,
1: so what uh what what are stair uh, i don't know anything about sparrows give us uh give us an introduction to sparrows
2: sure so sparrows are i would say from my experience, so one of the most or least appreciated bird groups. Because when you picture a sparrow, people usually picture a brown colored bird, but not like in a favorable way, but like in a, it's like a dull bird, right? A dull bird that doesn't do anything fun. That is, could not be further from the truth, right? So while sparrows are not my favorite group, of course, um, I still love sparrows, and I specifically study the seaside sparrow, as I mentioned and sparrows depending they can be found in just such a wide range of habitats you can have sparrows in grasslands you can have sparrows in forests like just all over the place different types of habitats um the sparrows that i study are adapted to life in a coastal environment so they live in coastal salt marshes which are hear me when i say the worst environments Ever. Like, they are brutal. Like, when you look at a a coastal marsh, like, from the, like, from the road or something, it's like, oh, look at that peaceful, like, homogeneous, like, beautiful landscape. When you get in it, let me tell you that everything's on the line, right? So that's kind of where I do my field research. These birds um, are adapted to experiencing and kind of being subject to a high tide twice a day, right? Because it's tidal. They're subjected to no fresh water only salt water that's the only water they have access to and predators from every direction okay so the birds that i study their eggs can survive underwater for 30 minutes um, which is a feat because birds when they're in the egg will breathe through the shell right so they can essentially hold their breath so to speak not literally in the egg and not have any gas exchange for 30 minutes underwater they drink salt water right if they lose go ahead how, how do
1: how do they do that
2: right can, and can other birds do that there are some other birds that so birds that are basically strictly in saltwater environments um okay can can do that so they're like renal system they their kidneys and everything they have glands to help them excrete salt there is a whole system several systems involved in surviving that um but just the thought of only drinking saltwater is unpleasant to my to my mind. Um but anyway, they they can do it just fine. Um and
1: And what what are what predators do they have?
2: So depends on what sparrow species you're talking about, but the ones that I study, they are subjected to (laughs) they okay. So they can have some mammalian predators like uh Mink, American mink, which are like semi-aquatic mammals, rice rats, which are semi-aquatic mammals. Uh, hold, hold
1: on, is this is are you just talking about like getting their eggs or actually getting getting the sparrows themselves?
2: So adults are a little bit more adept at getting away from a predator, but they will get you know hatchlings, nestlings, fledglings, eggs, the whole, oh. all any stage in life history. Yeah, um, so they they have mink, rats, raccoons are predators. Then. You got birds who are predators, so blackbirds, crows, grackles. Then, okay, there have been some observations of fiddler crabs, which are like this big, like an inch wide, crawling into nests and killing and eating the eggs, right? Little crabs, crabs. Last but not least, I recorded, for the first time ever recorded, uh, at least in published science, um, it actually just got published recently, during a high tide, the water came into a nest, The chick, there was one chick and two eggs. The chick had just hatched that day. It was floating on the surface of the water, still in the nest, right? Still surviving, its nostrils are above the water. You can see it moving. All of a sudden, a fish, a mummy chog, leaps out of the water and into the nest, right? This chick is still floating on the water. The the fish is under the chick. This fish grabs the chick by the leg and just just thrashes it around eating bits and pieces off of it, eventually killing the chick. So now they have fish predators too, which they probably have for a long time. But like, now we know that there are fish who are, uh, risking, uh, who are risks to their survival as well. So they really just have more talent. What
1: challenges. else could go wrong?
2: Sea level rise can go wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what's that?
2: Sea level rise. That's, that's what's going wrong now. But, um, yeah
1: oh yeah sea level rise yeah yeah so
2: they're just facing a lot of uh a lot of threats
1: are they scrappy little um birds huh
2: right and when you look at them you you know you think oh it's just another sparrow but you have people have no idea what these birds go through on a regular basis and their adaptations the, the the code in their genes that allows them to still survive anyway
1: So, do they... What's their migratory patterns like? So, they
2: are... This particular species is not migratory. So, at most, they'll... Interesting. Like, some northern populations might move down... Like, northern in the United States might move down the Atlantic coast a few states, but they're not, like, going to South America, Central America, or anything like that.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I... Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, so what's, uh, oh, oh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, what's their mating behavior like? Cause birds do always have some pretty fun stuff going on.
2: Mm-hmm. So this species, they're nowhere near as elaborate as a bower bird or some other, you know, very. That's
1: okay. It's impressive <laughs> that they can survive all their threats. So I'll give them, I'll give them that.
2: Right. What they do is the males, and it, 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 it's—I I know I'm not going to be able to capture this well with words, but essentially, they so males will sing, of course, like it's the case for songbirds. You know, they'll they'll perch on a piece of grass and just let their song go. But when they're really trying to get the attention of a female, they will. So these the, <laughs> these birds will shoot up really high in the sky, which is not typical because they're grass. Not grassland, but, you know, they, they, they just essentially move around in the grass and kind of at that height, you know, off the ground. Not really much higher. Males will shoot up in the air, arch God. their back, like, really intensely and sing. And it's just, like, I cried uh. one time because I the first time I saw it, I was like, is that a seaside sparrow, like, up in the sky? Sure enough, male arched his back, did his little dance, sang, and I was just, oh, uh, I was like, oh.
1: <laughs> well that's i mean that's a solid move yeah that's that's impressive you gotta admit you <laughs> i'm
2: like you you could use that energy for so many other parts of your survival
1: <laughs>
2: yeah
1: um I would love to talk about some of the uh the human impact as you as you mentioned um sea levels what what so what what specific area are are these guys in when when you're studying them
2: so seaside sparrows uh are found along the atlantic coast of the united states like way up by maine all the way down to like florida okay. and over into the gulf as well like into texas i'm studying the McGillivray's seaside sparrow which is only found in north and south carolina florida and georgia i'm focusing on georgia populations um mm-hmm. so when it comes to sea level rise which is affecting literally anything that lives on the coast and anyone who lives on the coast um is essentially intensifying threats that already exist. So living in a tidal environment, they're already exposed to the risk of nest flooding and having their offspring drown just with natural variation in high tide. But sea level rise is gonna make high tides higher and higher and higher. So we're expecting nest flooding to happen more often. The problem is that their behavioral response, their behavioral adaptation to losing a nest to flooding is to rebuild a nest right away but to build it higher off the ground so as to decrease the chance that it would get flooded again. The problem with that is that the higher they place their nest off the ground, the more visible they are to predators. So they're really caught between a rock and a hard place two opposing threats and you know which one is worse, how do they balance it, we don't know yet. So essentially that is the biggest threat to their survival looking into the future. And my research kind of comes in at the nest predation side. So I'm studying how nest predation um, varies across the landscape of their breeding habitat. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the threats, but yes.
1: Um, so are, are there... Are there multiple um kinds of sparrows in a given area or or are sparrows spread out uh, um, you know, it, it does each sparrow species have its own uh, niche in a different area?
2: So there is some um, like there are certain range limits for certain species of 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 sparrows, so certain sparrows are only found or more abundantly found maybe more in the north and in the south. Um, where I'm search, where I'm doing research, specifically, we will typically have seaside sparrows. Um, in the north, more in the north, you'll have salt marsh sparrows. Um, we'll have, uh, let's see, what other sparrow species do we have down here? During the winter, so during the winter, other sparrow species will do, like I said, like a little bit of, no, I don't even know if it's necessarily called migration, but they'll move a little bit, and those ranges will overlap. And we'll have maybe like two or three species of sparrows kind of in the same geographic region. Um, but there are definitely some, some, there is some separation that you like, you won't find a lot of salt marsh sparrows down here, but you will find a lot up North. Um, so there is some overlap and also some kind of divisions, if you, if you will.
1: How, how would you say that, um, uh, that birds, uh, this might be too general of a question. Maybe, maybe just sparrows. I, I don't. I, I'm curious how resilient birds will be to the influences of um, of global warming. Because I, I know as this is, you know, considered kind of the sixth uh, great mass extinction. And there's, I think there's like a hundred species on Earth a day that we're losing, or or something like insane, like that. Not that you know species go have always gone extinct here and there but it seems like things are speeding up quite a bit on the old extinction front mm-hmm. um how uh, how vulnerable are birds how how quickly can i mean this is such a flawed question because it's so general so i mean i mean pe- penguins are are obviously going to be, you know, there's not going to be tons that they can do if they're a little area that they're in, if ice caps melt or whatever, but it seems like something like a sparrow could kind of move around and change with the climate a little more.
2: Sure. So you are kind of, you're getting kind of to the answer here where it's like certain bird species are very, very specialized to a very specific area. So something like a penguin that needs ice, that needs certain temperatures, right? It's like they're, are very few places they can provide that outside of where they are right now. There are other species here in the southeast where I live, like the brown-headed nuthatch, which is just the cutest freaking bird. Oh my gosh, and they make squeak sounds, look it up, very much worth it. Anyway, they are kind of specifically adapted to pine savannas, like longleaf pine savannas, that and those habitats really only exist in the southeast. And so typically, if a bird can kind of a, can, can kind of utilize a variety of different kinds of ecosystems, to survive they can move with cooler temperatures right so we're seeing a lot of northward uh, a push northward for a lot of range uh range expansion for birds to kind of stay within the temperatures that they want to, to live in and need to survive but if your habitat if there's a disconnect between the habitat that you need and the temperature you need which is happening for a lot of species including penguins brown headed nuthatches whatever it might be that disconnect is what's really going to do them in. Um, but there are some birds that are more plastic and where they can find resources and where they can survive. And they can find... They're kind find of
1: like generalists, need. sort of? Right,
2: exactly, yeah. exactly. So they can live in different places, eat different foods. And so as they have to move north, they can find what they need, but not everyone can do that.
1: Hmm. Okay, well, what's, what's, um, what is sparrows' roles in their ecosystem uh, in terms of... Um, you, you know i I asked how their their ecosystem, their environment, and changes are maybe impacting them um what are what are sparrows' role in terms of um, insect populations or whatever else?
2: yeah, so a lot of sparrows will, as you said um most sparrows are pretty omnivorous, so they'll eat a combination of plant material and insects um and even other invertebrates like crabs, depending on where they live but a lot of sparrows are seed dispersers, so they will eat, you know, plant material, poop out the seeds, and this is the case for a lot of birds that ingest seeds, and simply by eating, going somewhere else, and then pooping moves seeds around, increases genetic diversity and health of plant populations, so seed dispersal is very important. You have sparrow species that, as you said, eat lots of insects, and so therefore will help to control the population of insects that can oftentimes be very detrimental to people if they surpass certain population thresholds when it comes to, like, the destruction they wreak on crops or human health, whatever it might be. Seaside sparrows in particular, um, in their ecosystems, they eat a lot of insects. So their diet during the summer is mostly comprised of insects. And as it gets colder, they incorporate more plants. Uh, but they'll eat everything from moths, which I love because I'm petrified of moths. Um, they'll eat you petrified of oh. moths? That is me. What are you talking about? Bonds and butterflies. I can't. I cannot. What are you talking about? I I can't. Yeah. No. I can't. (laughs) No, I can't.
1: I can't. You. I can't. I can't deal. You can't deal with butterflies. I can't deal with your opinion on butterflies. That's what I. What do you explain yourself? You have. What's going on here? They're not poisonous. They don't bite. there's not you just you're just against the most beautiful insects what do what do you, what are you? You just have a strong preference for the ugliest insects, or what's
2: <laughs> I really think like if I was locked in a room with a monarch butterfly, beautiful right? gorgeous gorgeous insect. If I was locked in a room with a monarch butterfly, I think I would pass away, okay? So, what are you- <laughs> the problem I have, because you know the color on say, you know, picture whatever beautiful butterfly, whatever moth, the yeah. color you have, the eye spots, the, the, the dark color with the light color, and it's right on each other like that, it's just too much. Like, it makes me nauseous to even look at that. Then two, they're chaotic. They're here, and then with one flap, they can literally just be anywhere, I don't know where they're going. They don't know where they're going, right? I can't What trust are you them. talking
1: about?
2: Then? So you can, it can touch me. And the thing is, I'm not afraid of pain. I'm not afraid of dying. So I'm not afraid of poisonous, You're... biting. That doesn't scare me. However, if I got brushed by a butterfly on my arm, let the thought, the thought, oh my god. I didn't wow. go swimming outside for years okay. because I was afraid that I would be wet and a butterfly would stick to me. Anyway.
1: It. so You yeah. didn't go swimming
2: outside. Outside. I went an indoor pool for Four the, years. For years, because
1: of butterflies.
2: Yeah, the thought of one sticking to my wet skin undoes me. Um
1: <laughs> Wow, that's. But anyway. I mean, we all we all have our things. Oh no, we don't just get to. Oh, but anyway, <laughs> you're weird. Not the butterfly phobia we're digging into it a little bit <laughs> maybe maybe it's the case because don't because don't butterflies have like some uh, i mean some of it is um i i mean isn't it isn't it some of it mimicking like poison to uh, as a self-defense against birds yeah maybe, maybe you're part bird now maybe you've been stalking birds Ooh. for so long you have bird eyes you know you've been looking through you've been your your theory of mind your ability to anthropomorphize yourself and put yourself in the i guess you don't say shoes of birds um (laughs) uh, but you so now your your disgust mechanisms are triggered by the same things that birds are
2: i'm actually going to be using that from now on as the justification what's happened
1: to you you said what i think that's what's happened to you
2: i and it's like i've always thought you know like there's my reaction literally
1: you've gone bird brained that's like the (laughs) new definition of bird brained when you actually take on Evolved, evolved preferences for for birds. You find yourself eating a lot of worms as well. (laughs) We might be getting down to the bottom of something here. Oh my gosh. that's incredible!
2: Yeah, definitely. What? What
1: what about caterpillars? Do you you're okay with cat? Well, yeah. none of this is logical.
2: No, no, I'm fine with cat. like. So, like, I would like to think that the bird brain would would work and would follow the whole the, my whole preference list, but it doesn't. I love spi- what about cocoons? Spiders I love. You
1: you scared of you scared of cocoons?
2: <laughs> no, nothing.
1: You're not scared. You're not. You're not scared of the. Okay. You're not scared of the caterpillar that's going to become a butterfly you're no. not you're not scared of cocoons that are just like moments away from being a <laughs> You're scared of you're scared of actual just butterflies. It's, it's the product. grazing. send it back huh So I'm not the only one giving you a hard time about this.
2: no
1: no, no this is and this is and you know why you deserve this. <laughs> you
2: know. it, yes yes, yes.
1: <laughs> okay mm-hmm. okay um, um all right all right so so sparrows eat eat moths and and butterflies um <laughs> yeah well and,
2: there's not so much butterflies out there insects. it's really just
1: the moths. but yeah they eat moths. okay lepidopterans hmm yeah and then well and then i guess in a way they're they're also uh you know they're i i their, some of their predators, what, how, how much of their, what remind me of some of the predators again? There was, um, had, yeah. Ma- so like how much of a, uh, how much of a mink's diet is dependent on sparrows? And sparrows? I, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of like, how, I don't know, is there like a rating for what's considered a keystone species or oh, whatever, yeah. and, and, and like what, what's not is that like i i literally don't know is that is that like on a scale of how uh, uh of how like a uh, given ecosystem on a whole how dependent it is on a particular species
2: so i don't i don't think there's necessarily a like set scale but there is like that designation for something to be a keystone species something else some other species ne- re- needs to rely on it for survival mm. um and so seaside sparrows are and i would, i don't think any As far as I know, I don't think any sparrows are considered keystone species. They, of course, contribute to the health and, um, you know, dynamic of their ecosystem. But I don't think that there are any keystone sparrow species. But as far as, like, the diets of other birds and, you know, how much they contribute, I'm not sure, um, you know, how much a a mink or a raccoon. Their predators tend to be very much generalist. So whether you're talking about the the mammals, like raccoons and mink and rats or the birds, they're literally just running through the marsh eating whatever's in their path. You know what I mean? So they're not like seeking out seaside sparrows specifically. Um, They're eating crabs. They're eating marsh wrens. They're eating everything. Everything out there. Mussels, yeah.
1: So sparrows don't have like an arch nemesis. They just, everything, their whole world is just danger.
2: They do actually have an arch nemesis. The seaside sparrow specifically, let me tell yes, the marsh wren that I just mentioned is another bird that's about half their size. They don't eat each other. They don't, Really interact, but they—they're—they're they're niche- They're just over- passive
1: aggressive. Not they passive. Just, they passive just, aggressive. They, they just, Let me tell they you. They just make snide comments
2: <laughs> one
1: on, on another.
2: <laughs> I wish. So the marsh wrens are like half the size of a seaside sparrow. Okay. But they are- I have never seen territoriality and aggression like I have seen in a marsh wren anywhere in my life. I caught on video probably five times. Marsh wrens, you know, so I, I'm, I'll have a video camera on a seaside sprout nest, and I'm watching incubation, I'm watching it all. The mother will leave the nest to go get some food. God forbid she's hungry. Right? Immediately, a marsh wren will fly to the nest, and with the angst of, like, a thousand marsh wrens, poke holes at all the eggs to kill them. Oh. And then fly away. Sometimes... Sometimes I'll level it up, poke holes on all, all the eggs, and then toss them out of the nest.
1: What is, the, what is even the point? Are, are they, are, so are they competitors for resources?
2: Exactly. Yeah. So they have this niche overlap where they eat a lot of the same things. They yeah. nest in the same area. And seaside sparrows, though, are like really minding their business. Like Seaside sparrows mind their business. They make their nest. They raise their offspring. And they're just doing them. A marsh wren... Is at no point in its life minding its business, and wrens are like known for killing the the eggs and offspring of other birds, even other wrens, like their own species. They will kill the chicks, they will kill the eggs, and so this behavior is like has been seen in a variety of marsh spe- or of, of wren species, but it has never been mm. recorded in a marsh wren before. So to see it with my own eyes, I was I'm just I'm angry. I'm still angry. I don't know
1: if I ever won't be angry about that. Uh, what? Well, what's what birds are the biggest assholes? Would you say it's the rents? There's the what's the um what is it the cuckoo or whatever? What's the, the one cuckoo? that what what's the one that puts its um mimic eggs? In oh, the... so the cowbird. The
2: cowbird cuckoos. A lot of birds are nest
1: parasites. No, yeah, the nest parasites. That's Aww. pretty. I mean. It's hard to beat that in terms of, like, not only kill your children, but you raise my children now. (laughs) (laughs) Kill your children, you you raise mine.
2: Have you seen the videos of, like, and I can't remember if it was a cowbird or a different nest parasite, but, like, they hatch, they can't even see. They can't see, they can't barely stand up, and they are shoving the other chicks. Have you seen those videos? Yeah, they
1: they back up into the... uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible that they just have that instinct. That's just like their first thing. the, first this, thing do. the moment they're b- born, they're just murdering. <laughs> From jump. <laughs> and then, they, yeah. but then they're not. I wonder if they're not that. They that's strange that they just like. I think they like chill out later in life sure. too. Like they're not. They don't. They just do most of their murdering <laughs> as babies. <laughs> Then you don't need to remember doing that and live with that remorse. Um, (laughs) Just like come out of the egg, murder stuff, and then you mature and you're like, ah, you know, that's like murdering. That's what that's what kids do. I don't murder anymore. (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) I'm like tearing up. You're hilarious.
1: So tell, tell us, uh, as we're wrapping up, what's some of your, what's some of your, um, what's some of your uh, uh, I, I want to hear about your new position doing as, as someone who, I mean, I call myself, I've been just calling myself a science enthusiast because I don't, um, I don't fancy myself good enough at science communication to give myself the title science communicator Wait, i sure try <laughs> but um but but what's what's your uh, what's your new role and what are you um kind of looking forward to doing
2: yeah so um and and,
1: and within that how can how can people check it out
2: oh cool yeah so um the organization i work for is called georgia audubon before yeah. like probably it, within um, about a month ago, they were just Atlanta Audubon and they just rolled out this statewide expansion. So a lot of my job is focusing around connecting residents of Georgia with Georgia Audubon and with other local chapters of Audubon that exist in in the state of Georgia. And Audubon, for those who don't know, is a bird-centered, bird conservation organization. And my role specifically is going to address the homogeneity of the space of birding. So I'm going to be like, my role is essentially to intentionally evaluate the ways in which our programming or the way we've you know run what we do has centered whiteness and has excluded people who aren't white or been you know uninviting people who aren't white. Run that through a filter of equity, essentially, and figure out like really interrogate what we do um, and 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 change in response to that. And then, as we're rolling out new programs and making new connections, centering other people's voices, Black people, Indigenous people, other people of color, LGBTQIA people in, in, in the state of Georgia um, to get them involved with uh, what Audubon is doing. Um, because Audubon does a lot of really great work when it comes to conserving birds and has a really important voice when it comes to bird conservation. But people have to be at the center of that. Any wildlife conservation, any environmental issues organization, if you are not centering people, you won't be successful. And so I think we are more and more realizing that not only do we need to center people, we need to center the people who have been historically oppressed. And that is how we'll get the most just, most equitable, most successful programming for people and for birds um, at the forefront. So that's what my work kind of centers around. There's a lot of of things involved, but that's the gist. And I would say that if you are Um, a person looking to support that kind of work. So if you're in Georgia, of course, I would encourage you to join Georgia Audubon or your local Audubon chapter where you are. Um, But wherever you are, there is likely some kind of bird conservation organization. It's, you know, like I said, birding has been historically pretty white, um, but the joy of birding is so infectious and so incredible that I've stayed despite that homogeneity, you know what I mean? And I encourage people to Mm -hmm. look at birds, to watch birds, to donate To programs that connect people with birds and with wildlife so that's basically my main suggestion for people no matter where you are you can always put money and
1: resources to that kind of effort yeah i mean it seems like a pretty easy sell uh like i don't i don't meet in terms of like getting people (laughs) into bird you don't see any you don't meet too many people that are like that dislike birds right (laughs) like like, it seems like such a natural instinct to be you know humanity has looked to birds to has aspired to fly you know this Mm -hmm. has been a part of who we are for who knows? Uh, you know, millions of years, perhaps right. uh, before before we were even humans, we we may have been we may have been birding. Um, oh yeah, some of our ancestors. And uh, I, I mean, I literally, I literally know more people against butterflies than against birds, and I only know one. Um, but <laughs>
2: oh,
1: that was that was good. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> uh, it, it, it's funny because you're. You know, I would have, I would never have, uh, this is, I, I love to find some new aspect of my ignorance in each and every episode and uh, this one, I would have never, I would have never, um, made the connection between, um, uh, the need for diversity within, Birding, I always just picture. it I mean, our birds. Is there like a lot of like homophobia going on in the birding community? I wouldn't suspect that there would be a lot of like, hey, no homosexuals in our in our bird watching. Right? Am I I wrong? Yeah, I mean,
2: I think the issue kind of is the similar one with, you know the the demographics that you encounter while you're birding so a lot of times again like i said the birding demographic in the u.s is very white very old and you will encounter like i have heard people say all kinds of stuff about all kinds of people just flippantly as a joke just ignorantly like whatever not because they're necessarily trying to actively hurt someone but they just they are conditioned to think a certain way and don't see any problem with that and so those environments when you're dealing with white old people in america is risky. If you are a an LGBTQIA member of the LGBTQIA community, if you're Black, if you're (laughs) Latinx, like any number of these uh, groups that have, even right now, when you look at the political landscape, it's like, it feels like a risk. And so if you can create a space that someone knows that this part of their identity will be welcome, like actively welcome, and it doesn't feel like they're walking into like maybe a gauntlet, that that's important, and so that's kind of what I want to do with my work is create those spaces where someone knows that they are fully welcome.
1: What's that? Um, what's that thing each year where people go around trying to identify the most species of of birds?
2: The bird, big year.
1: The Wait, big year. You're
2: talking about a big. Yeah, so like when a person spends like a year looking for birds, it's called a big year. Oh, is that we're talking that's about.
1: What it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they try to check off how many they can see in a given. Year. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of like a birder doing the big year, who also is against diversity for some reason. <laughs> like in in humans, is like literally traveling around celebrating the diversity of birds. I right. was like, oh, I'm sorry, but only straight white men should be celebrating Listen. the diversity of all of these birds.
2: And the crazy thing is, like, during when I talked about that Black Borders Week thing that we did, the comment yeah. section on every Audubon page was, it was crazy. Like, you, we had a lot of people supporting, right? But then the people who would be in there talking about stuff, why are you bringing, you know, why are you bringing race into this? You're being divisive. You're you know, accusing us of, like, perpetuating division, right? And it's like, how can you sit here and be so excited about two different species, right? Like the diversity between birds and be angry when someone talks about the diversity between
3: humans?
1: How? Yeah, 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 it's crazy.
3: Yeah, yeah. Hey everybody, it's Elaine Welteroth and I'm hosting a new podcast called Built to Last by American Express, where we will dive deep into the stories, history, and continued legacy of small businesses that shape American culture. Our debut season will focus on Black-owned small businesses that need our support now more than ever. In each episode, we feature the story of a Black business trailblazer that has inspired a modern Black-owned business. First up is Pinky Cole of Atlanta's food truck turned restaurant, Slutty Vegan. We'll also chat with Hanifa Mwemba, the cutting-edge designer behind the Hanifa 3D Digital Fashion Show. Plus, we'll check in with Issa Rae, our modern-day Renaissance woman. We hope that it encourages all of our listeners to support these businesses as well as the Black-owned businesses in your own communities. Tune in for these amazing stories and others on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: It's JCPenney here, back with some great gift ideas for everyone on your list. And they're all available now at your local JCPenney or online. Need gifts for her? Check out our selection of diamond jewelry that's sure to put a sparkle in her eye. Or help her cozy up at home with pajama separates and super soft slippers. For him, try JCPenney's grooming products, like shave sets and trimmers. Or compliment his style with smart flannels and jeans from brands like Arizona, Levi's, and more. Also, stop by Sephora inside JCPenney to find top fragrances for both him and her. For the kids, shop this year's must-have toys and games for all ages. Or bring smiles to all with matching sleepwear sets for the whole family. And for everyone else on your list, share some warmth with a heated blanket, an ultra cozy scarf, or let them decide with a gift card. There are so many ways to share the joy this holiday season and so many ways to shop JCPenney. Visit a store near you, pick up curbside, or go to jcp.com. Joy, comfort, peace. JCPenney.
1: Um, well, so this is funny because I was at before this interview, I was all, I already would have closed with a question that was Um, so how, what are some good tips for first getting into birding? But I didn't realize I was going to have to be like, well, (laughs) what color are you? (laughs) If you're black and you want to get into birding first, wear a shirt that says, I'm just out here birding, call, call your friends, let them know where you are in case you go miss. There's like a a whole extra set of checklists that goes along. So, okay. So you get. You get there, and then you 've done that then then, uh, just in terms of the birding aspect itself, what do you uh, what do you where do you recommend people um, get started because this is a part this is a fine time. I emailed you um, I, I have I have nature episodes on the show, some but not as much as actually like represents my interest because this is, like, David Attenborough and, like, all, all of that, uh, all, all of the, speaking of straight white guys, but <laughs> all, all of uh, uh, naturalists um, uh, uh, are the reason why I have uh, this podcast. Watching animal documentaries, learning about evolution um, is, is the reason why I have this podcast, and I don't have... Um, I, I don't have nearly as many uh, wildlife episodes on here as as I'd like to. And now with quarantine and people wanting to distance and everything, this seems like just such an incredible time for people to start getting outside and start exploring nature a lot more. And while everyone's like trying to take on new hobbies and whatnot, Boy, birding sounds like something that you can do pretty much anywhere yeah. is a great way to get some fresh air and exercise. So what do you, are, are there, were there any like early books that you saw early on or are there any like really good resources online for beginners?
2: So one thing I would recommend is, well, one one thing I want to say first, like typically when people think of birders, they picture like all this equipment, binoculars, cameras, scopes, all that. You don't need anything to go birding. You can just use your eyes. You can just use your ears. Um, But one thing that I would recommend as a resource, there is an app called Merlin, um, Merlin ID, which helps you identify birds. So you can, I think you can take a picture of a bird that you see if you don't know what it is, and it'll either tell you what it is or give you a couple of options of what it could be and you can kind of look in the details and see, you know, match it up with whatever's correct. But what I would recommend as far as process is concerned, if you have access to binoculars, definitely get them. They make, they open up the whole world, right? But what I would do is I would just go outside where you are, because um, birds are everywhere. They're in, you know, they're not just in the tropics, they're not just in forests, they're not just in grasslands, they're in the hood too, you know, they're everywhere. Go outside where you are, find any bird, whatever bird you see first, find a bird, figure out what it is, use that Merlin ID app. Um, If you have a field guide, which most people don't carry around nowadays, at least young people, use a field guide, figure out what that bird is and learn as much as you can about that bird. So say you go outside and you find a Northern mockingbird, right? A bird that you may not have paid paid attention to before because they're just, they're gray. It's like, they don't seem that interesting. When you look into their behavior and into their life history, what they do, what they're adapted to do to survive, to, to court, you learn about the details of what they eat. You learn about the details of how they mimic and what they mimic and when they mimic. You learn about how they will flush birds and or flush uh, insects and scare insects out of grass by like beating their wings really fast and spooking spooking bugs to eat, you, you know what I mean? You learn a lot of details. And then the next time you see a mockingbird, it will be very easy for you to identify it because you've keyed in on so many aspects of what it does and how it does it. And as you do that, kind of work yourself into more birds. So next time maybe you add a northern cardinal in there. Next time you might add, you know, even a European starling, which is not a native bird, but still super interesting and super cool. And as you kind of pick up on what birds, specific birds do, it makes it easier to identify. And you kind of just start accumulating that. And it becomes addicting. It becomes like a a treasure hunt is how i kind of describe it it's like you go outside you never know exactly what you're going to see but you will always see something and i think
1: that's what Mm. makes it so cool yeah it's it's so and 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 it's like such a it's such a kind of confirmation bias in like the in, in the most positive way too once once you like learn a new thing or become conscious of Of a new thing, even just hearing a new word or so all of a sudden you start hearing that word around everywhere. But I imagine when you start getting into birding, you just all of a sudden your conscious experience is just you living in a world of birds um (laughs) all the time. And that sounds like a lovely place to be. I think you talked me into birding. Uh I wrote down I wrote down the you said it was Merlin?
2: Merlin. Yep. M-E-R-L-I-N.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm downloading that right away. Yes. That very cool. Yay. Yeah, yeah, I'm into <laughs> it. Um, and then, where should people um, find? Is Instagram your main thing? Well, I saw you're on Twitter as well. Why don't you plug plug all the things?
2: Okay. Uh, well, if you're on Instagram, my Instagram is hood naturalist, but it's hood two underscores naturalist. And then on Twitter, it's hood one underscore naturalist. So you can find me in both those places
1: all right or they can just because you have a website as well right
2: yeah yeah it's it's hard you're a
1: real outsider for a lot a lot of academics don't it's surprising to me that that academics don't like do a bit more to (laughs) (laughs) make it easier for people to find their stuff and whatnot but um, but anyway what's your website
2: um, the, the website is really long and it's not, I, I don't know that it's like, it has like a lot of numbers cause it's free. Let's
1: Google <laughs> Karina Newsome. If you, yeah.
2: If you Google, go- if, yeah, if you Google me, it'll come up, I think. And that is on my social media pages as well. Links to my website.
1: I'll put all the links on my site. As well.
2: Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that.
1: Karina Newsome. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> you're
2: awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure.
1: Thanks. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll see you next week.